the word became flesh and made his home among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. A minister friend a couple of weeks ago shared with me the story of a man he described as having, quote, no interest in spiritual matters. Now, the man's neighbor was a church member, and they had a good neighborly relationship. They'd talk over the fence. They'd share tools back and forth, stuff like that. But they kept it casual, nothing too deep. Then one day, that man's life changed in an instant. Suddenly, tragically, his wife was gone. His world fell apart in a moment. And here's how he described what happened next. He said, I was in shock. I was in despair. I was numb. Lots of folks reached out. Yeah, if there's anything I can do. But I stumbled through those days alone. He said, after her service was over, after everyone else had gone back to their homes, back to their lives, I had nowhere to go. So I headed to the path along the river, and I just started walking. I didn't have a plan for where I was going. I didn't have a plan for anything. I was just walking. He said, at some point, I realized I wasn't walking alone. My neighbor, the church member, maybe he was afraid for me, I don't know, but he stayed with me all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed. If I stopped, he stopped. And when I started walking again, he did too. There was finally a moment, he says, the sun was just starting to come up across the river when I was done walking. I guess my neighbor could tell, or maybe he was just done walking too. But he finally came and stood beside me and simply said, let's go get some breakfast. And the man wrote, I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A religion that can produce that kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to know more about. I want to love. I want to be loved like that the rest of my life. Good morning. Welcome to Clear Creek. I'm David. If you're visiting with us today, we're so glad you're here. We were expecting you. And we're glad you've come to be with us today. We're so glad you've joined us for Easter when we celebrate our belief supported by historical evidence that a man named Jesus, executed by the Roman state, was raised by God to live again. The resurrection was the central message of the first Christians. They were so convinced it was true that they were willing to die. In fact, they did die in often brutal fashion, not because of something they believed, but because of something they said they saw, their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, the one they had watched die, had been resurrected by God's power and God's plan. And because of that, he became so much more to them than he had ever been before. He truly was their Lord. They didn't answer to Caesar. They didn't answer to the government. They didn't answer to the religious system or the culture. They answered to Jesus Above all, because once they realized death isn't final anymore, when it's been demonstrated that there is life after this life, 
there was nothing anybody could do to make them stop spreading that good news. And that same message, that same good news is central to why we're here today, more than 2,000 years later, still talking about Jesus. Because we believe that his resurrection from the most hopeless condition there is means there's hope for us in any circumstance. But you may be wondering, well, even if it's true, David, what, what difference does it make? I mean, I watch the news. I know that people are still dying in Ukraine, which only serves really as a distraction from the violence and poverty and corruption that are still going on around the rest of the world, not to mention the addiction and the homelessness that we see right on our own hometowns. For Pete's sake, Kelvin Sampson almost made another Final Four. The world is broken, people. Do you understand? So really, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make? Well, to answer that question, I want to hear what one of Jesus' closest friends, a man named John, had to say. You may know Jesus had an inner circle of 12 disciples who he later sent out to start, to lead the enterprise of the church, which led to us being here today. But among that 12, there was an inner core of three, Peter, James, and John. And if you ask John, he would say, yeah, but I was his favorite. He loved me the most. All of the other 12 were executed because of their faith in Jesus. Only John wasn't killed by the state. And that was simply because they didn't want to make one more martyr to lead to more. But he, he was exiled to die, isolated and alone. So he had plenty of time with his memories and he sat down to say, let me tell you about my friend Jesus. He said, it's my faith that gives me life. And I've written these things because I want so badly for you to believe like I do, to have this life that I have. So he sat down to write this account of Jesus. But before he got to the stories of Jesus, he said, I need to give some context. He wrote a prologue that said, you're going to need to know this to process everything that comes after. And John chapter 1 is that prologue when he begins, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. And everything that is, everything that's, that has come to be, sprang into existence at his word. When he spoke, it happened. He says Jesus was the creative force, the originating power for all that is. And then he says that word became flesh and made his home among us. Now, to make sense of that, Beyond just, okay, it's another name for Jesus and he became human. I want to geek out for just a couple of minutes. About 400 and some years before Jesus came, one of the smartest people to ever live was doing his thing in, in Athens, a man named Socrates. Maybe you've heard of him. Or any Bill and Ted fans in the room, you may know him as Socrates. All right, Socrates, Socrates, whatever you want to call him. Now, I learned this week that there is no record of anything that Socrates ever wrote down. We know all these things he said, but he didn't write anything down. Matter of fact, the earliest record we have of what Socrates said was actually mocking him. A playwright named Aristophanes wrote a play that cast Socrates in a very unflattering light. People thought his ideas were foolish, nonsensical. Well, Socrates had a disciple you may have heard of. His name was Plato. And Plato was furious at the disrespect that his teacher was receiving, so he sat down to record all that Socrates had said, all of his great wisdom. It's through Plato that we know what Socrates said, and 
Plato took those ideas and expanded upon them and expounded and, and gave us a body of philosophy that still shapes culture today. The central idea to the teaching of Socrates and Plato was that this world we live in, with all of its visible, tangible, material reality, is actually only a copy of a real world somewhere else. They said there exists a world where everything is as it should be. And everything that exists here, chairs and fruit and food and sex and relationships and poetry and horses and love, all of it, they're just shadows of a reality somewhere else. Now, the word that Socrates and Plato used to describe this ideal form from which all reproductions were made, that word is logos, or you may pronounce it logos, and it's translated word. Now remember, this is more than 400 years before Jesus came. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, Greek philosophy had influenced most of the known world. These ideas had become part of the cultural conversation. So John was writing to Greek-speaking and in many ways Greek-thinking Jews, and he says the logos, the ideal, the enduringly real, entered the shadow lands and dwelt among us. Now, standing in opposition to the real, to the logos, is something the biblical writers call the flesh. Now, the Bible refers to flesh a lot. There are 13 distinct usages and shades of what it means. Sometimes it's a neutral term. It refers to our physical bodies that eat and sleep and bleed and sneeze and get in fights and all those things. And it also refers to like the steak you're going to throw on the grill this afternoon when you get home. It's, you know, it's flesh. So is that what John is saying? That the eternal and unseeable God put on a skin suit and wore it around for 33 years and then took it off and went back to his spiritual beingness? We use this verse at Christmas a lot. And sometimes I think that's how we read it. Oh yeah, he became human. He became flesh. He put on skin. But because of this Greek influence on John's readers, I think his, his use of logos says there's something more he wants us to know. To the writers of the New Testament, which is simply a collection of stories and letters written by people who believed in Jesus, who wanted other people to believe in Jesus, to those writers, flesh represents the lowest impulses within us, the corrupted and corrupting parts of our nature. It's not a neutral term at all. It definitely carries a negative connotation. They say things like, it's the weakness of our flesh that arouses our passions and makes us give in to temptation. Paul says the mind controlled by the flesh is hostile to God. The mind governed by the flesh, he says, is death. In Galatians 5, we looked at this last week a little bit. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. And then he lists a whole lot of things that are just ugly and destructive. And he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, hatred, rage, selfishness, envy, drunkenness. And it goes on and on and on. Now, if you're visiting, you might be thinking, well, here we go. Here's the part where he starts to preach. He points a finger, tells us what we're doing wrong. But this isn't just a Bible thing. This isn't just a church thing. It's a human thing. We've all seen it to be true. I believe we are all capable of great acts of good and beauty and deeds of sacrifice and heroism because we are created in God's image. But we also know that we're all capable 
of horrendous cruelty and depravity and weakness. I believe that there's a way to approach things like money and sex and relationships and work, all the things that make up life, and to approach those in a way that elevates and builds up and draws together. But we also know, and we've probably experienced, the use of money or sex or relationships or work in ways that misuse and tear down and isolate and destroy. From a biblical perspective, because of our flesh, because of our sinful nature, no matter how hard we try to attain the ideals of love and justice and peace and healing on our own, our best efforts are just poor copies, mere shadows of the original, of the real. Let me see if I can illustrate it like this. If Lagos is the Mona Lisa, then our efforts, our flesh, is more like an eight-year-old's version of the Mona Lisa. Or maybe you've seen Elias Garcia Martinez's 1930 fresco of Jesus from Spain, and it is a work of love and devotion and beauty. But if you're familiar with this work, it's probably because you've seen the attempted uh, restoration that didn't go quite so well. It was a little old lady in the town that said, I can fix that. It was getting worn out. I can fix that. It's since become quite the tourist draw. Everybody comes to that little town in Spain. It's inspired like a whole meme industry and so you can find versions of this all over the place there's even a it's called the that painting the the restored painting they've nicknamed beast jesus and there's now a beast jesus restoration society facebook page i thought you know that might not be a bad first tattoo because every day i could look at it and say in my flesh i am a poor representation of the real this language of shadows and copies is all through the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, there is a standard, the logos, the word, the glory of God, which we in our flesh cannot meet. And I know that sounds like bad news. That is bad news. There's a gap we can't bridge but back to John 1.14, the best news imaginable is summed up in one little word. The word became flesh. And Kent talked about this at communion as well. He didn't just play dress up. Jesus wasn't doing make-believe. He didn't appear to be flesh. He became flesh. The Apostle Paul says he took on the nature of fundamentally transformed into a servant, not just the form. He wasn't a shapeshifter. He became a servant. Hebrews 2.17 says he was fully human in every way. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was irritated. He went through puberty for you, fully human in every way, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. But more than that, more than just going through what we go through so he could empathize and sympathize with our weakness, Paul makes a more astounding claim, and this is exactly what Kent said at communion. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. But 
But sin separates from God. Sin carries penalties. It has to be punished. The consequence of sin is mortality, is death. So the immortal, incorruptible, eternal God, the word became flesh, entered into the shadow lands, and in the greatest act of injustice in the history of the world, the sinless, majestic, holy, beautiful Son of God didn't just become flesh. He was baptized into the fullness of its fleshness. He took the brunt force trauma of the most corrupted, broken, bent, evil, depraved, sadistic, inhuman act Flesh could conceive as he was shredded by a soldier's whip, his brow pierced by cruel thorns, his hands and feet impaled on metal spikes, his side pierced with a spear. Isaiah said he was so disfigured, we could barely recognize him as human. He was just meat. God's son, the standard of beauty and truth and justice put on display, revealing the worst parts of who we are. Why? Well, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so we might become the righteousness of God. Again, do you hear what he's saying? Sin separates, but but righteousness reconciles. Sin means punishment, but righteousness brings reward. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the perishable becomes imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. Death is swallowed up by life because Jesus made possible a brand new nature for anyone who would receive it. These shadows are given substance by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And maybe you've thought the central message of the church is the world is bad, our flesh is bad, you're bad, so come and learn to be good. No, that's not it. Or maybe you think it's this world is bad, but there's a better world coming, so just endure, don't do anything dumb, and hold on until one day Jesus is going to come and take us away, and we don't have to mess with these fleshly bodies anymore, and we'll go be, I don't know, disembodied spirits playing Invisible harps? I don't know. No, that's not what Easter is about. That's not what the church is about. That's not what Jesus is about. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't come back as a disembodied spirit. He was himself, still eating and drinking and walking and touching and embracing, still bearing scars in his flesh. He was still himself, But he was more. And the hope of Easter is that we can be more too. John told one more story at the end of his collection of memories about Jesus. And I don't know why, but this story just captivated me this week. And I thought, it's not where I thought I'd go, but here's where we're going. Life for Jesus' friends had changed in an instant. Suddenly, tragically, the one they'd built their lives around was gone. And even though they were together, they were each utterly alone. 
So John said one night, nobody really had a plan for where to go or what, we, what to do. So we went to the lake. We said, well, we might as well go fishing. And it says they, they fished all night, but not really. John said, we barely pushed out from shore. And I think they probably spent most of their time staring into the darkness, trying to make sense of what had happened. What they didn't realize was that Jesus was near the entire time. And he said, just as the sun was starting to come up across the water, a voice called out to them across the waves, hey, you guys got anything to eat? No. He said, throw your net out one more time, and then come on in. Well, of course, they did, and they caught more fish than they'd ever caught before, and then they knew it was Jesus, and they couldn't wait to get to the shore. By the time they pulled the boat onto the gravel, Jesus already had some fish cooking on a fire, which I think is the ultimate power flex to a bunch of fishermen. Oh, you went all night? Yeah, I got them right here. And John said that nobody really knew what to say or what to do or how to act. So Jesus simply said, come on, guys. Let's get some breakfast. I don't know what it is, but something about that scene, the resurrected Lord, the eternal word, the source of all that is good, joining with them in the most basic act of eating together to nourish their mortal bodies, something about that scene fills me with hope. He's not just God who was with us and did some things. He's not just the Lord of someday, so let's hang on until he gets here. But he reveals himself as the God who is with us in darkness and confusion and grief and temptation and frustration and hunger and weariness. Yes, but even more than that, he's God with us in the mundane acts of every day, raising our kids, Showing up to do our jobs faithfully day after day. Sharing tools with our neighbors. Speaking up against injustice. Act, adding beauty to the world. Acting kindly. Sitting down over breakfast with friends. Jesus, in that simple act, was saying, look, I'm putting things back together. I'm redefining what it means to be human. He was communicating, your life matters to God. Your life here and now, day to day, matters to God. You may still be meat, but right here, right now, in all your meaty glory, you're more. And everything you do matters. Everything you do has significance. Everything you do is spiritual because you have a resurrected Savior who eats fish for breakfast. I want to invite the worship team to come on up. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, also written by John while he was in exile, he has a vision of Jesus calling out to all of us. Jesus says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Anyone who hears my voice, I'll come in. Let's have breakfast. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done in the impulsiveness of your flesh, no matter what the sinful inclinations, 
we all share have led you to do, no matter the doubts and questions that keep you away, no matter how dark and uncertain the path you've been walking. Jesus says, I want to walk with you. I want to be friends with you. I want to give purpose and meaning to your days. I've come that you might have life, abundant, overflowing, right here, right now, rich, full, honest to goodness, life. How do you do that? How do you get that? The Apostle Paul said, it's really simple. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you were made right with God. And it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. So we're going to sing one more song this morning. And this song is the invitation of Jesus. It couldn't be more simple. Whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you've been, come and be friends with Jesus. At Clear Creek, we are passionate about walking with you as you figure out what it means to do that in your world. So when the service is over, grab somebody you know that goes to church here. Grab somebody you've seen on stage. Come and get me. And if you say, I'd like to know more. Can you tell me what it means to walk with Jesus? Can you tell, tell me what it means for my life to be more than it is right now? If you ask me, here's what I'm going to say. What are you doing this week? Let's go get some breakfast. <laughs>